Hi, I'm the producer of A Public Affair, Jade Isiri Ramos. If you enjoy the show, I hope you'll consider supporting the station. We take donations all year long at wortfm.org. Thanks. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. Good afternoon, lunchtime listeners. You are with a public affair on Wart, W-O-R-T, 89.9 FM out of Madison. You don't recognize me unless you've been sitting in a courtroom recently on a jury. I'm Jessa Nicholson-Getz. I'm substitute host for a public affair. And joining me today is a fellow criminal defense attorney, friend, and business partner and trial partner, Aaron Nelson, with everything that has gone on in our current climate, uh, there's been a significant erosion of public trust in the justice system, uh, from critiques of police misconduct and police aggression to statements by powerful and publicly platformed criminal defendants alleging that the system is rigged. Uh, We as two criminal defense attorneys have watched with great interest the way that people talk about the place that we spend a lot of our time. And so, Aaron, uh, I think we're going to go back to basics today and hopefully have people call us at 608-256-20. 001 to talk about the presumption of innocence and what we're seeing happen with the way that we all see it. So go ahead and introduce yourself. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. As you mentioned, my name's Aaron Nelson. I'm a criminal defense attorney up in Hudson, Wisconsin, but uh, oftentimes with you practice across the state. Looking forward to having a conversation about um, our criminal justice system and what the public thinks about it. So Aaron is a little bit more of a history buff than I am. And while we were getting ready to chat with everyone today, he sent me some very academic, very well thought out law review articles about the history of the presumption of innocence. And if anyone has ever been in a courtroom or seen an episode of Law and Order or really participated at all in popular culture, you've probably heard the phrase innocent until proven guilty. And I always jump in and correct people and say, I think it's actually innocent unless proven guilty, uh, because that's the contrary in nature of the defense attorney. But Aaron, why don't you talk about where that came from? This isn't a new concept, and it's actually a pretty firmly rooted principle that traces back beyond the origins of our Constitution. Yes, uh, the research that I've conducted Uh, Although it's not listed in our Constitution, it's not listed in the Bill of Rights, um, it's not listed in the Magna Carta or the English Bill of Rights, it is something within the common law that's been around since about uh, 1300, is what I think the research shows. It comes from biblical roots as well as uh, European common law. So the first listing of it here in the United States is a case called Coffin v. USA, which is a federal case uh, back from 1895 in which it was uh, discussed by uh, those judges. So uh, it's definitely not a new concept, as new as it feels like every day when you and I are talking about it with jurors. This is an ancient, old idea. It is indeed. And of course... We start with that premise uh, because it is a challenge to prove your own innocence. Oftentimes, innocent people have very little to add to a conversation when they've been accused of a crime. They weren't sometimes present at the scene. Uh, Often the accusation can come in the form of eyewitness testimony that may be unreliable or in the form of expert or scientific testimony that sometimes functions in a way that I think we can all rely on and sometimes doesn't. And, you know, when I look at the cases that we're seeing more and more come through the system, and certainly there are some parallels to high-profile cases we see nationally, there are questions about how you prove certain elements of crimes, right? And I'm going to use, I think, what is probably the most public example that I can think of, which is uh, former President Donald Trump stand about to stand trial on any number of uh, felony counts in various courts. But there's been much of a discussion about what his intent is when he makes statements and whether or not he had intent to do certain things, uh, whether his intent was to engage in political speech or if his intent was to, I'm going to say, 
overthrow the American government. Other people can use different words, but those are the words I would use. And so that is sort of my starting point here, Aaron. But I think we can broaden it to talk about what types of evidence helps people overcome a burden of proof and the presumption of innocence. We see so many accusations that the justice system is rigged and that you can't get a fair judge or you can't get a fair jury. And to me, that's really linked to a belief and a trust in jurors applying the presumption of innocence. Agree? Disagree? Uh, well, I think it depends upon who your audience is, who the people are, right? I'm, I know that there is certainly a, a a portion of our population that probably has a lot more distrust in the criminal justice system uh, than those other people that perhaps hold um, certain privileges. What I think I'm always uh, surprised at is how often I'll have a potential client or their family come in and just express utter shock and dismay that they can be in this position based upon the what they'll call the lack of evidence or allegations. So hearsay. Um, it's a bit of a yeah. Well, yeah. Hearsay. Oftentimes it'll be, you know, it's actually not hearsay. That's what's called an eyewitness uh, statement. Um, but you know, it seems to be that I, I think there, are, at least from my experience, there is a large section of the public that perhaps. Uh, still trusts the criminal justice system, except for how it applies to them, right? Have you ever had the situation where someone will come in and give you the the lowdown on here's what happened and here's why it was so unfair and um, I think you should just go to the people in power and let them know and they'll sort it all out, which shocks me. My experience is just always that when I go to people in power and ask them to sort things out, that that solves the whole thing and I can take off work early that day. Uh <laughs> and this isn't to say that the, the, you know, it's completely flawed. It's just, I think it's, to me, it, it's a uh, interesting observation about human beings that even though their one and only experience with the criminal justice system is that they think that they're being treated unfairly, but they still have this, underlying belief that there's somebody out there that if we just get to that one particular person in power that they'll fix it all and it's just a, a phone call away and unfortunately i think you and i agree that usually the only way that that resolves is that you put 12 people that didn't have very much power in a box and give them some of the highest power of the system that we allow, which is the jury, and ask them to evaluate the evidence and, and find the facts. And so, you know, I'm curious, and Aaron and I can talk to you about different types of evidence we see and whether or not it's scientifically reliable and how that plays into the burden of proof. But I'm curious, people that are watching things, again, we're at 608-256-2001. Call in and talk to us. What do you think about the presumption of innocence? How do you think that it's working in the 24-hour media cycle when every fact that may or may not be admissible in a courtroom is being published on the, the artist formerly known as Twitter, I guess it's X now, I'm going to call it Twitter for the rest of my life because today is my 41st birthday and I am middle-aged enough that I don't need to learn new names for things. But we see people making claims uh, everywhere, anywhere with a, a microphone or a, a pulpit or a, a Twitter account. And how do we sort those out? from what's outside of the courtroom and what assumptions people make and what we hear in the courtroom and hear testimony. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, for a lot of, I think, the listeners, um, it's going to be a matter of how can they, how can somebody say that? What we'll often discuss with our, you know, potential clients or clients is that it begins with some sort of allegation and those allegations tend to be in some sort of written form. But I think a lot of the times our, our clients who come from the general public don't understand that eventually it needs to move from this two-dimensional allegation on a piece of paper to three-dimensional where there's a real live person that comes into court and says certain things and maybe they uh, bring with them certain pieces of evidence. 
Well, and so I made a reference earlier to, you know, the effort that a prosecutor has to make to prove intent. Uh, And usually they'll call other witnesses in to talk about the observations of the person and what actions they took and how quickly they might have taken an action or if they didn't take any action at all. And it's that last part, right? The failure uh, to act or the failure of evidence that I think sometimes causes problems in the fair administration of justice. I think when we move from direct evidence that overwhelms to sort of process of elimination of, well, someone wouldn't have sat there that long unless they intended this, we start to lose sight of that. And I'm, of course, thinking more about the way this applies to scientific evidence and uh, process of elimination, negative corpus stuff, the way that sometimes instead of placing the burden correctly on the prosecutor to establish every element, what we see is science that functions to say, well, we've ruled out some innocent explanation, so you should conclude guilt. And I worry, I mean, just in the course of doing our job, I worry that that narrative, because of the constant media bias that if someone is arrested, they're probably guilty, that all of the sensational facts in a complaint are often published because a complaint is public record and very little else is, that by the time a jury starts to listen to it, even if what they're being told is, well, we can rule out some innocent explanations, that guilt narrative starts to take over and moves us away from that bedrock presumption of innocence. I mean, those that guilt narrative can be strong, especially, as you said, in today's world in which I think we're all tend to be cynical, right? I think it's a natural human reaction to guard against being tricked or bamboozled or hoodwinked. And I think sometimes when we come into court, everyone's looking at us to just wait to say, when is Jessa, when is Aaron going to trick us? When are they going to hoodwink us or pull something over uh, on us? That rarely, if ever happens, it just almost always the 12 jurors are smarter than any one individual in the courtroom. Um, But I think that's the fear going into it for every human being that gets it on that jury. Uh, You would hope that that is the fear, that everyone worries about it. But I don't know that I always am convinced that people do. And, you know, I guess in terms of talking through what that looks like, again, friends, 608-256-2001. You can call and talk to us about your views on the criminal justice system and whether it's applied fairly. But, uh, you know, so... Let's talk about what that looks like in practice. Let's talk about the way that people stand up for the presumption of innocence and, you know, the ways that that works and the ways that it fails. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing about the presumption of innocence is that it really doesn't attach for our clients until you get into a jury trial or a court trial for that matter meaning the police aren't required to presume that you're innocent. The district attorney isn't required to presume that you're innocent. They can't convict you, but they can go forward with some of this bad logic, poor science, um, questionable evidence to go forward with a charge. So um, that's where I think for me, at least there's this contradiction, like when does that presumption actually take effect and how do we get to that? Because on the other side, I think, there's this belief, perhaps, again, I'm, it's conjecture, but is there a belief amongst the public that by the time somebody gets to trial, well, if he was innocent, some other gatekeeper would have closed the gate or would have sorted that out. But there really aren't that many other gatekeepers prior to our getting to a jury trial. Right. right. And, and often, often the, gatekeeper the gatekeeper is the judge. The judge. And the and judge, judge makes, makes decisions, decisions about, about pre-trial, pre-trial rulings, uh, but, but they're not they're finding, not finding facts, facts most, of the time. most of the time. Yeah, and if they're not finding facts, they're not making decisions. So as you and I know, all of those factual issues get decided by a group of 12 people. Um, in some worlds, we can certainly talk to the people in power um, and try to persuade them that our version of the facts is the true version or that their version of the facts isn't believable beyond a reasonable doubt. But it seems to me, and maybe I'm getting to be that uh, old curmudgeon man, but uh, it seems to me that that's less and less uh, of something that occurs in my, in my workplace or in, in the places that I work, that 
it's just things got to get resolved by a jury rather than two people coming to some sort of compromise. And it seems like more and more we're really running into trials, I think, are on the upswing nationwide. And hung juries are actually on the upswing nationwide, which I find fascinating because I, again, when I look at the way that the media works, I think that we, we've all gotten used to going into our own corners and we don't work as hard, I feel like, societally as we used to, to try and find common ground and common agreement. I mean, you can just look at Congress and see how little people who disagree about things are willing to set those differences aside to work together. And I personally, I mean, for the first 15 years of my career, I didn't hang a jury. I've seen more and more juries hang in the last five years 10 years uh, than, than I did the whole first start of my career. And I think that part of that goes to this distrust of different parts of positions of power. So whether you distrust the police and view the police as having that power, or you distrust the experts, so the fire investigator, the doctor that has determined there's abuse, the uh, gunshot residue guy, and that's junk science, but that's a whole separate topic uh you know who do we trust and how do we apply that trust and some people i think are cynical of defendants right and of the presumption of innocence and i think some people are are suspicious of the people making the claims i would just remind everybody that you're listening to a public affair on wart that's 89.9 fm w-o-r-t you can follow the station at Wart Talk, W-O-R-T Talk, on the platform formerly known as Twitter, now called X, and a public affair on Facebook. And you can call in and talk to us about the justice system or anything else you'd like, 608-257-2001. I'm your substitute host, Jessa Nicholson-Getz, and we're talking with trial attorney Aaron Nelson about the presumption of innocence, the way that people view the legal system with cynicism, and how we sort out if facts are convincing. Yeah, what I'm really interested in is if if the the listeners and hopefully eventually some callers can give us their uh, insight as to whether or not, you know, this presumption of innocence that we're talking about today, whether they consider that to be a core value or is that something that's more of a legal techni- uh, technicality? Because um, that's, I think, what we're always worried about when we go into court is, you know, you hear about... Uh, at lots of different trial institutes. Um, You can't go in there and talk about the law. Um, Nobody believes in the presumption of innocence anymore. You got to tell a story, a lot of which is true. Um, But I find that, you know, as I get older, the more and more I am talking about the presumption of innocence. And I think that jurors are finding it to be a core value. What does the public think? I don't know. Let's hear from them. 608-256-2001. You know, we're going to have to just start telling stories about the way that people react to systems soon. If people don't want to talk to us, that's fine. I promise two trial lawyers have plenty of stories to tell. Uh, But, you know, one thing, an early trial of mine, I remember doing a jury and uh, it was here in Dane County. It was a Dane County jury and my client was black and the jury was all white. There was not a person of color in the jury, all white lawyers, white judges. Uh, and when I introduced the topic of race, everyone was very quick to say it doesn't matter at all. It's not a factor. And my client had raised his hand saying, I think it matters, <laughs> um, even though I hadn't told him to raise his hand when I was talking to the jury. Uh, But he was the only one. And so I think it's interesting the way that unconscious bias can affect how you place value on certain things. That, you know, of course, a, a jury panel composed of the majority didn't immediately cue in, even in Madison. And I mean, Dane County is a pretty progressive county in terms of Being a college town, you get a lot of college students on your juries. You get a lot of professors, people that tend to be aware of tensions with race, particularly in the justice system. Uh, But even then, when sitting in the room, it's something that I think people almost want to pretend or, or disregard plays a factor in that room because we do sort of enshrine the ideal of justice as being untouchable by those everyday biases. And I think that it's unfortunate that that isn't as true as our ideals. 
Yeah, I think a lot of it plays into, I think, what we would call expectation bias, right? We, we as citizens of this, you know, state country uh, want to believe and we have uh, that the system is fair. Um, and when we all of a sudden start thinking, okay, uh, maybe it's not fair, that might, that might be a very difficult um, idea to wrap your head around. And it's also a very difficult world to live in if all of a sudden the, you question whether or not power is legitimate or whether or not it's being enforced fairly. All of those things make people really, really uncomfortable, um, some more than others. And so I think that's that'd be my concern is, are people uncomfortable talking about that? I would hope that since your uh, first trial, which I know was when you were like 19 years old or something like that, but uh, nevertheless, um, it's probably been, you know, 15, 20 years, maybe things have changed and it's a lot more easy to talk about those uncomfortable topics. Have you found that to be so in your practice? I think that, you know, I think that jurors, first of all, I'll say that overall, I, I really do believe that jurors try very hard uh, and take their job seriously. And I've Absolutely. never had a jury where I've really felt that they've checked out or weren't listening or uh, had made a decision. I, uh, you know, they're always very attentive. They take notes. I can tell that juries care. Uh, I have, though, and I, I do have discussions in jury selection regularly, and I'm sure you do, too. Uh, some people raise their hand and say, yeah, I think if you got arrested, you're guilty. Uh, you know, I don't I don't have any hesitation about that. Or I've seen the news and what the news said is that this is really bad. They've said that this guy is a, you know, a monster. Or this this is an egregious crime. Or, you know, I read that the doctor concluded that this child was suffocated or I and they do come in with, I think, a tendency to want to solve the crime or solve the puzzle. And I think one tension that defense attorneys have is sometimes the answer to the puzzle or the crime is that we don't know what the answer is, or perhaps it's that no crime occurred. And I mean, I'm thinking of you and I are going to start a trial soon where one set of expert, you know, there's there's basically one guy, there's one and a half guys, but really one guy who says, look, this is arson. And then we've got a slew of people that are like, no, it really just isn't. <laughs> uh, yeah. we, we can't tell you exactly what it is, but we can tell you you didn't follow any of the procedure you're supposed to follow before you come to a conclusion, especially not about something this serious. And those are, you know, narratives that really put the focus on the importance of the presumption of innocence and how much weight we put on expert testimony or the claims of people in positions of power more generally, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, what we would probably like you and I as criminal defense attorneys would uh, have a jury full of people who are super interested in postmodern literature and just... Uh, <laughs> with no solution necessary, right? But then again, I think about that and I think, oh, but how much of the interest in type of unsolved things is that we now individually get to solve it, right? It's not that the answer is being brought to us, but that the me as an individual, I get to figure it out myself and nobody else has to tell it to me. And so, but oftentimes, as you said, that's the problem here is, is like, maybe there isn't an answer and, or the answer is it's undetermined or the answer is that it's unknown. And I, I'm worried that those are unsatisfactory answers. Um, and so in a situation where it's super serious and you just can't rule something out, how comfortable is an average citizen with saying, look, I just don't know. And because I don't know, I'm willing to vote not guilty. Hope so. And you and I have obviously had some experiences where I think that that's, what's, that's what a jury has concluded. But uh, I go in there uh, worried and concerned, I should say. No, absolutely. And, you know, again, I know I'm hammering the Donald Trump example, but I look at that and so much of what the conversation is going to be. And when I say conversation, I mean the testimony, the dialogue of a direct examination and a, a cross examination. But it's going to be the prosecutors calling in witnesses to describe contemporaneous conversations to an event and a person's demeanor in those conversations. Right. So, OK, people are storming the Capitol. What is 
former President Trump's demeanor when he learns of that? What actions does he take? Does he appear distressed? Does he appear concerned for the safety of others? Does he appear amused? Does he appear delighted? Uh, And what information is being conveyed to him and at what time, right? Like, so how many people are telling you that there's no election fraud and you've got this sort of other corner of people who are saying, no, 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 there is. And again, 608-256-2001, I always wonder, okay, if somebody calls 30 witnesses that say he was delighted and totally unconcerned and wanted to see things continue and absolutely knew he lost this election, and then you call three people who say, no, he sincerely believed that there was widespread outcome determinative fraud, and we don't agree with the demeanor that these other 40 people have testified to. What do the 12 people do in the box with that conflicting information? Is it the number of witnesses on each side? In Wisconsin, we're in, we instruct a jury that they're not to consider just the number of witnesses on each side. So we tell them that they're to consider credibility. And what goes hand in hand with credibility, I think, is often bias. And what is interesting to me is the potential biases of the witnesses that purport to have expertise. Uh, and how bolstering a guilt narrative through a witness that probably has viewed an entire case through that lens functions. Uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, there's all kinds of, you know, even for our clients, right? If we call, if we call witnesses on, uh, on our client's behalf, more than likely the witnesses that we're going to call are people that our client knows, right? You're, your spouse, your partner, your friend, your relative, somebody in the family, somebody that knows you really well. Because that's how you know somebody is you hang out with them and you're around them and you can attest to their character or some of the things that they did. But obviously that puts them in a position that easily be criticized because it's like, well, you're biased. You really like Billy. So you're going to say these things because you really like Billy. Um, So that certainly happens on the citizen side. And then I think to some other extent, you know, the worry for us as criminal defense attorneys and maybe on the other side as well is that somebody um, has perhaps an agenda or they come in with a certain uh, belief um, in general about whether it be fires or whether it be about uh, abuse um, or whether it be about a political position and that they, the lens through which they're seeing things um, colors how they see it. Yeah, and just for those just tuning in, uh, I am substitute host Jessa Nicholson Getz. You're listening to Wart Public Radio, 89.9 FM. This is a public affair. I am chatting with criminal defense attorney Aaron Nelson, and we're talking about the presumption of innocence, the burden of proof, bias, and uh, how jurors make decisions. Yeah, let us know what your thoughts are. I know, Jessa, one of the things that you initially started talking about was just, you know, sometimes... Um, deduction, right? Deductive reasoning is certainly a, a skill set that we value uh, in human beings and certainly in attorneys as well as sometimes in jurors. But um, how does that deductive reasoning um, work when you have a presumption of innocence? You and I were just talking the other day about a situation, you know, the, the game Clue. We've all played Clue right? There's certain variables. There's a, you have to pick a person, you have to pick a room and you have to pick a weapon, right? And how you get to the answer is absolutely, you know, an elimination process and you use deduction, right? And that's something that I think people commonly do, but I don't know if that works really well in a criminal, uh, in the justice system. You know, what are your thoughts on whether or not we can encourage those fact finders to use, you know, the elimination process and deductive reasoning to come to some sort of conclusion. And we'd love to hear what you folks think, 608-256-2001. But, you know, my, I compare that. And for people that have never watched a criminal trial, jurors are instructed with this huge packet of information that is referred to as the jury instructions. And it's basically a, a common sense a description of what the law is and how they're supposed to apply it. And Wisconsin does some 
unique things in their jury instructions. One is that in our instruction about the burden of proof and presumption of innocence, we actually tell the jurors that it's their duty to search for every reasonable doubt, but it's not their duty to search for doubt. It's their duty to search for the truth. Uh, and that is not a, a nationwide uh, use of language. That's actually something that is rooted in Wisconsin law and uh, is, a, is a stateside thing. There are different versions of that concept that come up in other state courts and in the, the federal system. But I think I, I've not seen one that uses that exact search for the truth language besides the Wisconsin court system. And I think that sometimes... That urges people or it can function to urge people to speculate or to try and finish a story that is perhaps not properly finished beyond a reasonable doubt by the evidence by filling in gaps, if that makes sense. And so I, I worry about when you're talking about process of elimination things, right? If I'm trying to figure out I mean, just a, you know, my, I have two kids. They're little. If I'm trying to figure out which one of them took the peanut butter off the table and wandered all over the countertop with it, I'm going to look and see if there's peanut butter on either of their hands, right? That's something that we call circumstantial evidence. I didn't see them reach into the jar of peanut butter, but if my son's covered in peanut butter and my daughter isn't, I've got a pretty good reason to conclude that my son is the peanut butter bandit, right? Sure. Uh, Absolutely. However, you know, if I had five kids and one thing of peanut butter and I look at two of my kids and neither of them have any peanut butter on them, but I don't know where my other three are, I don't think I can make any determinations about if I have a peanut butter bandit in the family at all because I haven't had the opportunity to collect sufficient information about each suspect. And so I worry that with process of elimination, we can do that when there's a fixed set of variables. You know, and when there have been 60 challenges to an election process and all 60 of them are decided in one way, I, I start to feel confident that we're getting it right there because over and over and over again, people are testing a hypothesis and coming to an identical conclusion, which is we don't have to worry about this. Uh, that's not always as clear cut when you're talking about evidence in a criminal case, especially when it's uh, dueling experts. And, you know, defense attorneys often call defense side experts that really, and maybe I sound like I've got a chip on my shoulder from the defense side, but that really get a bad rap solely because we've retained them, right? That it's always, well, that's a hired gun as though a person is just willing to get up on the witness stand and destroy their own career and commit felony perjury for like the $4,000 that they've been paid to do their job, you know, I, I've always thought that that was a strange thing. But again, people put a lot of weight into the fact that a prosecutor who works for the government is sponsoring, quote unquote, their expert or their witness. And yeah, it's, it, it's concerning, right? Because, um, I mean, look, people get paid for their work. You get paid. I get paid. Most everybody who does their job gets paid to some degree. And if this is what their professional job is. The fact that they're getting paid, I don't think should be uh, nefarious or looked upon as some sort of all of a sudden, oh, you're going to do something. What I always find surprising is how much, at least my thoughts is, that might say about the person making the accusation as opposed to the person accepting payment. Because I get paid just because I get paid. That doesn't change who I am or what I believe or what I'm going to say. Right. I mean, I have some core values and principles that I'm going to follow through with regardless. Now. Maybe that's because I'm in a privileged position to some extent, or maybe uh, that I'm not thirsty and I can, <laughs> you know, I can I can pick and choose some of my cases. But um, yeah, it's an interesting phenomenon to think that that cynical view of somebody else that just because they got paid, they're going to come up with a different uh, an answer. Well, we were, so you and I have a mutual friend who did a trial and called two different experts. It was a um, an abusive head trauma trial, which is very, as you know, I know you've done them too, is a very controversial science. And the state cross-examined his two doctors on the size and price of their homes. And one of them lived in a very modest home that did not, it was not worth very much money. And the suggestion was that 
they needed the money so badly they would testify to anything. And then the next one lived in quite an expensive home in Cape Cod on the on the ocean. And the suggestion there was that he was a hired gun who only said what was useful to the defense for money. And my reaction to that was, I guess we're Goldilocksing the size of people's homes and their truth telling function, right? Is that you have to have the exact correct size home to be truthful, apparently under the state's theory. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, it it really gets to be just frustrating as opposed to like, let's evaluate this based upon science or let's evaluate it based upon common sense or logic or other things. Um, so much of it, I think, nowadays, and maybe this has been uh, a blueprint uh, by the person that you've been talking about who's charged with crimes that has been put out there into the world in which if you can't attack the content, you're going to attack the character. And that's tends to be what uh, a lot of it is. Um, I'm sure criminal defense attorneys are just as guilty of that type of behavior in some cases. Right. No, I think, I think we're fine. Right. See, everybody thinks we're the bad guys, but we're the good guys. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but I mean, that is a tried and true. Um, I don't want to say tactic. Um, because in some cases, I think it's legitimate, right? Um, maybe there are some reasons that you wouldn't believe somebody, right? If somebody is sitting in jail um, and there's a system that has uh, been designed that's going to reward that person in jail for saying bad things about uh, Billy or Barb or some other person that's in jail, right? It's not necessarily just that person's character because they're in jail, but they've been stuck in a system that's going to reward somebody for saying X or Y about somebody else. Um, I think you're talking about a jailhouse snitch, uh, which makes for great courtroom drama on TV. And frankly, I think it makes for pretty good courtroom drama in real life. Uh, some of the most interesting cross-examinations I've seen in, in my career and watching colleagues have been of individuals who are hoping to benefit by cooperating. And we're yeah. certainly seeing those tensions play out in the national news media, too, particularly with the Trump-related Georgia indictment, as we're starting to see some of the uh, co-defendants take pleas and flip. At least that's the language that is usually used in the media, flipping. Uh, and so changing to cooperate with the state after you have maintained innocence and what it does to someone's credibility when they essentially cut a deal and seek to benefit and, and often do benefit in terms of providing testimony. How does that, you know, I mean, like Mike Cohen, Trump's former lawyer, is a commentator on MSNBC and a lot of other things. And he's provided significant testimony in a variety of these indictments. And uh, he obviously was a convicted perjurer. Uh, and that, you know, that's true. He served time for that. But does that render everything else that he has to say not credible because we have one prior instance of untruthful conduct? And how do yeah. you weigh all of that? Yeah, right. I mean, certainly in our world, we certainly oftentimes uh, proceed with the, you know, who amongst us is perfect, right? Who who amongst us should be judged by our worst moment uh, or worst day? But I think uh, there are times when, yeah, that might put into question what somebody else says based upon their past practice. Um, I mean, there's no greater interest than self-interest. That is definitely true. And it doesn't it, that only amplifies when potentially your liberty is at risk or you can do something to help yourself get free faster in the cases of uh, jailhouse testimony. We are at. I am Jessa Nicholson Getz. This is a public affair on Wart, W O R T 899 FM. We are taking calls, though no one wants to talk to us, 608 256 2001. Like I said, I'm Jessa Nicholson Getz, and my guest today is criminal defense attorney Aaron Nelson. We are talking about the criminal justice system, the presumption of innocence, and media perception of how that all works. Yeah, and perhaps we should make a disclaimer. I know you have a statewide reputation as being a fantastic and vigorous cross-examiner, uh, but we promise if somebody calls, we'll ask open-ended questions and do nothing but listen. Uh, so despite our skill set, um, we're not going to cross-examine anybody. Give us a call. Let us know what you think. No, absolutely, because there are so many trials of national importance coming up, and there's such a distrust for 
the system in so many ways that for me, being somebody that's a law geek, it feels like a really pivotal and important point in time for us to recommit as a country to that presumption of innocence and to applying that burden of proof. Because the more I hear people express concerns that you can never be treated fairly in a system, the more fragile that system becomes, right? If we collectively don't have faith in it, it's going to start to crumble. And so what I worry about is we've got whole groups of people with very good reason. I'm not I'm not saying they're wrong, but with very good reason, don't trust the members of law enforcement that are tasked with making arrests. They don't trust the Department of Justice or local prosecutor agencies to use appropriate discretion. And they don't trust the judge to properly gatekeep. And they think that the jury pool is tainted. And so and. You know, many defendants take that view, uh, that distrust of the prosecution, and then there are many people that just take that view, distrusting anyone who's been accused or arrested and is facing charges. And so it, it is interesting to me that the national conversation is so focused on the failures of this justice system when, and I can't help but comment on the politics of this, so few bills are being introduced to fix it anywhere. Uh, so for all of the complaints that people have about the fundamental unfairness, we don't see legislative reaction to assuring that we have fairer systems. Uh, in fact, I think we see erosions of protections. And you and I could probably go on forever about the way that elevating uh, some victims' rights through the recent amendment to the Wisconsin Constitution for Marcy's Law has created new tensions by way of protecting the presumption of innocence and the the rights of the accused against other important societal values, like not re-traumatizing traumatized people and being supportive of people, but often emotionally supporting someone or making them feel believed and heard is a therapy function, not a courtroom function. And some of the popular media narratives have started to suggest that we must start from a presumption of believing someone who makes a claim. And so there are a lot of different tensions, I think, that are running very high in the public consciousness about the way that we do trials right now. Absolutely. I mean, you know, and it's the look, it's just hard to trust people in the world. Right. I mean, trust is a val something that we all value. And I think in this. Perhaps cynical, it's probably an over simplification, but in this cynical world, it's just hard to develop trust. Um, especially of people in power, right? So then you contrast that with another scenario where we're asking uh, at times, you know, believe so-and-so, believe so-and-so, and is that appropriate to do it within the criminal justice system? You know, for me, it's what I've said in the past is, look, I don't try cases on the corner. I don't try cases at the coffee shop. I don't try cases at the dinner table. Right. We try cases in a court of law where there are certain rules and there's these presumptions that we talk about. And the difficulty is when you're talking to your buddy on the corner, you're having coffee with a friend, you're sitting with your family at the dinner table. We don't have those presumptions and you don't need them. Um, but maybe maybe that'd be good if we did. Looks like we might have a caller. or two. We do. We have a couple. It sounds like we've got Kevin, who is also a trial attorney. No, no, no. You got me? Yep, I think we do. Hello, is this Kevin? Okay, hi. This is Kevin. Um, so I am not a trial attorney. Oh. I am the child of a trial attorney. Oh, even better. And, You've uh, heard all these stories. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. We've got them all the time. And, you know, the dinner table everywhere. My favorite is sitting in front of the TV watching Gunsmoke or something. And, uh, <laughs> you know, my dad would say what was going to happen. And I'd say, how did you know that? He said, oh, I wrote this one. You know, it's like there's only so many stories. <laughs> they keep coming around. But I am concerned about, you know, how can we get 12 jurors, the judge himself, the previous guy who, you know, either people know he's guilty or know he's not guilty. Right. So I don't understand how we're going to, you know, it's really challenging. 
pulling mm-hmm. pulling people away from their deeply formed opinions based on inadmissible evidence, which that's what the press is, right? Any media, however accurately reported, is inadmissible evidence until it is sworn and given through live testimony that is not hearsay that is you know supported by reality it's just noise but people form a lot of really strong opinions based on the noise and i would like to say that uh, skilled litigators can start to pull apart some of those biases and impressions in a jury selection process and hopefully uh, the instructions that the court gives the jury are abided to and on the subject of that and kevin i want to hear anything else you have to say but i see we've got brenda who actually might have to sit on a jury soon and she's got some concerns herself yes um I guess I'm worried that if serving on a jury, especially on a high media case, um, what about my safety? Um, Media tends to swirl around these high-profile cases. Sometimes they find juror members and and speak with them, and and I don't want to be on the evening news because I gave um, or I was part of a jury that gave a verdict that maybe was controversial. Aaron, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm just a small town lawyer in Hudson, Wisconsin. We certainly have some cases that are, you know, have some local media. Um, I don't find that here, I'm always surprised at how little coverage actually our cases tend to have. Like how many, how unlikely it is for uh, the general public or other people to come into the courtroom and uh, observe or do that. Obviously there's, you know, nationwide cases and every now and then there's a case that, that um, does get that coverage. And I, I sus- suspect that that fear is real. Um, statistically speaking, I think it's extremely unlikely that any jurors, I've not heard even anecdotally of any jurors being uh, being concerned, but I know in my last trial that I had, or not my last trial, but a trial that I had this summer in a county uh, much uh, down in La Crosse, some of the jurors expressed some concerns to the judge during the trial about their own safety. And that that surprised me. It shouldn't in hindsight, but it surprised me. And so I think that fear is real. It's not just Brenda that has that fear. And I know that many national uh, nationally covered cases, they'll seal the jury docket. So they'll, they'll seal the names of the jurors that's not made public. I've had a case where... Uh, because there were concerns that there could be juror intimidation, that the court only identified them by numbers and wouldn't even let the lawyers keep a list of the names. Um, so courts will take steps to to provide extra protection for jurors. And I see we have Randy on the line who has a comment about the importance of prosecuting cases. And so we're almost out of time, but we're going to hop on and hear from Randy and his thoughts on that. I just wanted to say that I think that uh, uh, it's very important for somebody like Jack Smith or somebody to pursue a case, even if there's doubt about uh, about the uh, ultimate conviction, because there for four years we saw uh, we saw Trump walk on everything. And I think at some point it has to show that at least one side in in uh, in these cases, the prosecution uh, is making a good faith effort. And I think, yeah, I think that, that oh, might ahead. be something that that goes back to circles back to the trust. Are we as citizens going to be able to trust our system if those in in a leadership position aren't willing to question the other leaders? Well, and I think that that point is a good one in that sometimes part of accountability is being subjected to process. And while I certainly would never suggest that, you know, look, when I represent a client and they have a trial, I know the extraordinary amount of stress that can place on someone emotionally, financially. I mean, you know, it's a very difficult situation. And so I hate to suggest that a trial in and of itself should be punishment. But I do, because it, it shouldn't be, but I do think, Randy, that there is absolutely something to the idea that 
when you have matters of national concern, it's important to publicly and transparently show how our justice process works, uh, which on the Trump issue, I really hope that we come up with a way to, to put television cameras in the federal system uh, for purposes of, of covering those trials. I think that that's really important. We don't have that ability right now. I know that the Georgia case will be televised, and I think that you know, somebody said sunlight is the best disinfectant. I think exposing the public to an open and honest process and the process of that public complaint, having someone be publicly arraigned and plead not guilty, entering that evidence in at a preliminary hearing or through a grand jury, depending on what state procedure is there. We, Wisconsin, are not a grand jury state. Many states are. Uh, federal system uses grand juries. But making sure that people see that there are efforts to hold people to account. And also, I think it's important that, and this is just my opinion, and I'm willing to bet Aaron agrees with me, that I think it's important that the public sees cases of national concern get not guilty verdicts, too. Uh, because I think that that helps counteract some of the concerns that we as defense attorneys have that people just assume they're guilty. I I can think of any number of high-profile criminal verdicts over the years. Casey Anthony really stands out. Uh, but any number of high-profile criminal verdicts over the years that people have really thought the jury got it wrong. But if you read the trial transcript and see what was introduced in the four walls of that courtroom, it looks really different than what was reported in the media. And so oh. I think the more that you can actually see that real-life process play out without editing and without spin and without soundbite, uh, the more faith we're going to have in the system. I hope so. I mean, the, the, the concern might be that people, observers come to those uh, situations with their own biases already in store. And therefore, if their expectations are not met, they actually it reduces their trust in the system, despite the transparency, despite the sunshine, despite everything else. And so it's a I mean, there's nothing that's going to be perfect about it, right? There's going to be always going to be people that disagree. Uh, at the end of the day, as somebody who's talked to a group of 12 people, you know, hundreds of times, um, and they've entered a verdict, uh, I tend to think that if they, even if they don't get it, uh, agree with me, that to some degree they get it right. They're always conscientious. They always think about it in a way. And I think that most of the time, you know, they're always a group of 12 people. They're smarter than any individual person in that courtroom. And so that's just, that's our community. Yeah. And I can't wait to watch what's happening nationally and see how that goes. Well, we are just about out of time. I really appreciate all of you spending uh, the hour with us. This is my first time substitute hosting. I'll be back from time to time in an unpredictable manner. Uh, I'm Jessa Nicholson Getz. My local Madison office is Nicholson Getz and Otis. I am a partner of Wisconsin Elite Defense Group, uh, which is the statewide practice that I share with Aaron and attorney Michael Cohen, not of the MSNBC commentator, a different Michael Cohen. Uh, you can follow the show, A Public Affair, on Facebook. You can follow the station at Wart Talk, W-O-R-T Talk, on X, which used to be known as Twitter. And you can call in at any time, 608-256-2001, for future discussions. Again, you're listening to Wart 89.9 FM out of Madison. Uh, this is Jessa nicholson Getz. Thanks for having me today. And Aaron, sign off. Thanks. It's very enjoyable. Look forward to the next time. Thanks again.